0: Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room far from Nashville's Music Row became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey everyone, today we're continuing our celebration of Black Music Month with one of my all-time favorites, jazz legend Sonny Rollins. Rollins is dubbed the saxophone Colossus. He's an American tenor and composer who is widely regarded as one of the most influential jazz musicians ever. With several awards under his belt, a Grammy Award for Lifetime Achievement, and the National Medal of Arts, to name a few, some even venture to call him the greatest living improviser. Sadly, now at 91 years old, Rollins no longer plays as a result of pulmonary fibrosis. But he is able to look back at an eight-decade career that took him all the way from the beginnings of bebop to playing with the Rolling Stones and all over the world. On today's episode, I spoke to Sonny Rollins by phone about one of his first big gigs at 18, way back in 1949, playing alongside other jazz icons like Bud Powell and Fats Navarro. He also explains why he no longer actively listens to music, and for the first time ever, how Charlie Parker is the reason he kicked Drugs. This is broken record. liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's my phone conversation with the great Sonny Rollins. I want to talk about early in your career. You're 18 years old on uh, in 1949. That was your first like professional date, and the first that I can figure was with Babs Gonzalez on St. Louis Blues. Is that does is that does that seem true?
1: I know that. I began recording in, in the late 40s. So I, I would imagine that that might be true. I can't verify exactly. Do you remember Babs Gonzalez pretty well? Oh, sure. Babs Gonzalez was like a character. <laughs> you know, was, well, yeah, I remember Babs very well. Babs uh, liked my playing a lot. And I used to um, make some of these gigs that Brabs and Gonzalez had, pile up a lot of musicians in the car, and we'd go down to Philly or we'd go up to Boston or places in the the immediate area and uh, play. So I got a chance to play with some of my uh, idols. I got a chance to play with Fats
0: Navarro. I want to bring that up. The same year, when you're still 18, you got to play on some pretty incredible Bud Powell records. Whale, <laughs> Bouncing with Bud, 52nd Street theme, Dance of the Infidels. I mean, just real, real classics. And you're playing on there with Fats, with Fats Navarro, the, the amazing trumpet player. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was, I mean, I
1: guess I had
0: too many stars in my
1: head to even... <laughs> And, and 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 realize what I was doing, yeah, oh, uh, but you know, so this is i I credit Bab Gonzalez for doing that uh, with getting me on a lot of jobs with uh faval, I think I'm sure I can't remember some but some other the the best players around played yeah. with some of these jobs, and I was a young young cat. And my having an opportunity to play with
0: them was uh, tremendous. At eighteen, playing with people like Bud Powell and Fats Navarro, were you were you nervous at all? <laughs> well, I was too stupid to be nervous. <laughs> that might be a good so, thing.
1: <laughs> so I always felt that if they wanted me there, then I'll just, you know, that I should be there. Mm-hmm. I was no, I was never really one of these guys that uh, was, uh, uh, felt intimidated. Yeah. I just felt, well, look, if they want me to be here, then I'm just, you know, I guess I'm supposed to be here. So it wasn't bad. So I went on and did what I did, but it was certainly... Uh, not on the level with J.J. Johnson and all of these people that I was playing with when I was a teenager.
0: Right. I mean, Roy Haynes, who we thankfully, just like you, we still have around these days, he was on those Bud Powell sessions as well, um, the drummer Roy Haynes. Do you ever have the urge to to call someone like that these days and just sort of confirm (laughs) that these things actually (laughs) happened? I called
1: Roy up on his birthday's and uh, I always call him up, and we talk about things that we can both remember. Yeah. So Roy, I know for, I know Roy. We know we were a bunch of young kids wanting to play music, and Roy moved up, uh, up in our neighborhood up on uh, Sugar Hill. They called it. We all knew him, and then Roy was playing with Lester
0: Young. You must have loved Lester. I mean, I can imagine Lester must have been an inspiration for you.
1: Lester Young was God, you know? And it was so good to get, uh, to know Lester Young and to know that Lester Young liked me. Because we used to be up in Lester's apartment at the Alvin Hotel up on Broadway, and, uh, guys would be less to look out the window and if for some guys coming musicians, he would call down and tell the guys, No, say I'm not home. <laughs> so he you know a lot of people came to see him but he didn't abide everybody. And he liked me. He liked me and Max Roach used to come by there and uh I got, I got a good uh, uh friendship with uh, the great prayers and
0: uh, that gave me a lot of validation that I was doing something right yeah absolutely I'm realizing Roy has a birthday coming up in uh, in a few days here so I guess you'll be probably calling him huh
1: oh yeah I didn't know it's coming up yeah I'll find out about it and I will definitely uh, call him definitely yeah
0: yeah Man, Roy will be turning 97. You're, you're 91 now. How long ago does an experience like that feel at this point? Like, does it even feel like it was in the same lifetime? Well, yes and no. And, it, uh, it, you know, it, uh, it was,
1: it, no. It, in a life, that's a tough, tough question because a lifetime means, you know, the uh, last week could be a different lifetime in a way of <laughs> yeah. speaking.
0: Yeah, sure. In a
1: way, it's a different lifetime, yes, but still, it was a lifetime which I was involved in, so it's not that different, but yes, it was different in so many ways, different musicians around, different Mm -hmm. venues around, you know, so lifetime is a difficult word. Since I believe in reincarnation, I accept reincarnation. So maybe when you say it was a different lifetime, it brings up too many uh, contradictory uh, things to be able to answer that uh, precisely.
0: No, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. I was watching an interview you did the other night in 1962 on Ralph Gleason's uh, show that he used to have, Jazz Casual. You were the same age during the filming of that, that I am now, you're 32, and you were referring to yourself as old in that taping. You refer to yourself as kind of like an old cat now. I'm curious what advice you might give yourself at 32 now.
1: You know, I've made so many mistakes in life. I've done some good things in life. Uh, You know, I was learning, which was a learning experience. I think I was born a fairly uh positive person used to call me the jester when I was a little boy, so and playing. so I think I had a, a positive personality all through my life. You know that's what we think, and it's good. but uh things happen to us. we get tested in life, and it's a long trip. You know, and I've known so many people that uh, didn't make it all the way and ended up in terrible situations. I was talking about my friend, there's a great drummer from Chicago named Ike Day. I played with Ike Day when I was in Chicago, back in 1949. He was strung out on drugs and... uh, I was sort of strung out on drugs at the time, so that was a different, a different world. But it's, it was one of those uh, rivers I had to cross. Yeah. So that it, it's hard to look back. You know, I made a lot of mistakes in life. I did some things in life which I like. My music, I, I was always trying to get better. Mm-hmm. But as I said, I was a guy that wasn't afraid of trying to do something and playing with uh, superior musicians and all of that.
0: No, you definitely because did. Because,
1: you know, I felt that I should be there. They wanted me to be there. Yeah. We have to learn. We have to try to be uh, the golden rule and all that stuff. Got to try to do it. If we don't get it now. We have to try it again. Like it said in the TV commercial, pay me now or pay me later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm going I'm to start quoting that.
1: <laughs> yeah, man, you got to get it right. You can't do anything and get away with it. You got to get it right. Yeah. You don't get it right now, you're going to have to get it right later because you reap what you sow. See, some of these things are very... Important. Important to remember that what life is about. Life is to find out the reason for life. What does it mean? And uh, that goes on and on, man. Who knows how many lives we have to live? Could we be a billion trillion? Who knows? I don't know. But I know that you can't get it generally in one lifetime. Some people are really advanced that i read in life, I say, wow, their journey, they know a lot more than I do. Then some people, I'm ahead of some other people in their journeys. I say, wow, I've learned some things this guy hasn't learned, or this girl hasn't learned.
0: All of these things mean something. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back with more from Sonny Rollins.
2: Reboot your credit card with Apple Card. as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com.
0: Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, job's got a worker for that.
2: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisions History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first-ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the Unconventional Awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking, win a donation to a charity of your choice, and much more. You can enter before July 31st at T-Mobile.com unconventional unconventionalawards. That's T-Mobile.com unconventional unconventionalawards. I'll save you a seat. We're back with more from Sonny Rollins.
0: You know, I'm thinking about what you've sewed musically, and that certainly is more more than I think many people, you know, would ever contribute to one lifetime. And I was thinking about the year particular, 1956 for you. That year, you played a date with Miles Davis that included Charlie Parker. D- do you remember that date? Oh, yeah, collector's items. Collector's items, exactly. You played Serpent's Tooth. Did you interact with Bird much on that session?
1: Well, Bird was another one of my uh, gods. So, uh, of course, there was a lot. Well, there were some other things happening on that particular session. And, uh, well, I guess I might as well say it. At that time, I was still on drugs. So I hadn't seen Charlie Parker in a while. So he said, oh, he said so. So I told him. I think he said, "Yeah, how are you doing?" And I think he meant, "Have I got my life together?" And I tell him, "Oh yeah, yeah, man, I'm I'm doing good," you know. So I I lied to him. I wasn't doing good. And some guys in the band later on during the session they ratted on me. They said, "Oh man, Sonny's Sonny was out getting high with this last night." So anyway, later on in the session after. He found out that I had lied to him. I noticed something in him, how destroyed he was, how despondent he was to, to know that, that I had. And not just me. Then I realized, Rand Bird was so involved with all of the young musicians trying to follow his music and his lifestyle.
0: Yeah.
1: It was killing him.
0: The drugs and all that, yeah.
1: Yeah, knowing that all these young guys were using drugs, it was killing him. It was killing him, and I saw that at the session. So, you know what? I said, okay, that's it. I said this to myself, I'm going to get off of drugs and show Charlie Parker that he shouldn't be so down because some people are following his positive effect on their life not the negative effect and that's when i made my decision to get off of drugs wow i didn't know
0: that i had no idea
1: yeah well that's part of this life that i'm living here Yeah, yeah. so actually you know what i got off of drugs i didn't know whether you need to know all of that but it, it wasn't no, easy no, it's,
0: it's, it's very fascinating did you ever get a chance to tell charlie that you got clean
1: Okay, well, what happened was this. There was a drug rehabilitation place in Lexington, Kentucky. It was the first place where... It was like the Betty Ford Clinic, before the Betty Ford Clinic. And a lot of people were there, people that were into drugs, movie stars were there. We were treated like patients, not as criminals. Anyway, so... I was there for the cure. The cure was I've been four months. I I left Lexington in five five fifty five. That's when I was uh, discharged or whatever you want to call it. But the uh, unfortunate, maybe so, maybe not. Part of it was that Charlie Parker passed away one month before I got out of Lexington, Kentucky. So I never got the chance, to, which I was waiting to do going up. your he said, hey, man, I'm straight, Charlie, I'm straight, man. I would convince him or he would know that I, I was so anxious because I was so ashamed of lying to him earlier on this record date you just recalled. So I was so anxious for this to happen. I would be able to see him and convince him that I I wasn't going to uh, disgrace him anymore. But unfortunately, that was denied me. However, I do believe in things like the afterlife and all that stuff. So I think Charlie Parker knew wherever he was at that oh, Sonny got my message.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And, and it, you know, really, when you think about it too, it's pretty great timing that you got clean in '55. Because I mean, in '56, your career is really insane. Your your output. I'm thinking about you know, you do saxophone colossus, tenor madness. You do uh, brilliant corners with Delonius. Um, you do a lot of your work with the Max Roach and Clifford Brown quintet. Just really incredible stuff is happening. I wanted to ask you, that Brilliant Corners album with Thelonious Monk, that record really blows my mind when I listen to it. It's like spectacularly complex, especially that title track. Do you remember, was that a tough session?
2: A oh, tough couple of very sessions? Very
0: tough session. Yeah. Very tough
1: session. It was a little different than the music that Monk had played before, as I remember. It was a, t- it was a tough music, tough music. But everybody liked that record a lot. They always mention that when they're talking about uh, uh, Monk's accomplishments.
0: Yeah. D- did you enjoy playing
1: on it? I think so. I think so. It was a hard record to make. You know, it was hard. Everybody didn't uh, get it the first first go around. But, uh, yeah, sure. It was playing with Monk. Playing with Monk was a... It was a celestial experience. Whatever came out of it, yeah. And I had that experience, and everybody liked that record a great deal.
0: I know er- Ernie Henry, another tenor player. He he ended up leaving. I think one of the sessions, and and then Clark Terry came in to sort of play. Did you ever feel like leaving? Oh no, no, no. Maybe if they kicked me out, but I'm not leaving <laughs> on
1: my own. No,
0: <laughs> you're not quitting.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> They'd have to show me the door. There was a lot of great people on that record. There was uh, Oscar Pettiford was there, Max Roach, I believe, and Monk played the Chalet. I forget everybody that was on the record, but there was some... it was great. It was a little different than some of the music he had done before. So it was quite a,
0: quite a landmark. Yeah. Can you tell me about playing in the Max Roach Clifford Brown quintet with with yourself and, and George Morrow and, and Richie Powell? It sounds to me like you guys had incredible chemistry. Did, did it feel that way to you at the time? Of course I had played with Matt and a couple of times in in
1: New York, but uh when that was uh the band with Clifford and he uh, it was different. It was right you know, I I was doing more. I think I played as a Sideman or something on some record, Max Roads in New York. But when I played with the band, that band, it was really, I don't know, I'm glad it sounded like that because I had a, a great experience playing with uh, Clifford Brown. And Clifford was such a straight-up a straight guy, he was such a straight-up player, one of the best players as we know, when I look back today and I talk to different guys, all these young guys, Clifford Brown was their favorite trumpet player. So he was quite a guy. But he was also a, a great person. And I learned a lot from Clifford because Clifford was playing all of this music, but he was not a guy that was messing around with drugs. He wasn't that, you know. So I said to myself, wow, man, listen to all this music he can play and he's not, it had nothing to do with his personal life. So so you don't have to be uh, using drugs or drinking a lot or anything like that to play as much music as he did. And that was inspirational to me and uh, I really learned uh, that I said, wow, man, if, Clifford can do it, man, all his music he's playing. I I can do it. You don't need drugs to play. Yeah. So he was a grand we were good friends. I mean you know, I was really close. After he passed away when when we were playing in the band and sometimes uh i channel Clifford. I say, Hey Clifford, man, uh what what would what should we do right here? I mean, I talked to him like that about wow. the music. Wow! And then he'd answer me, and that went on for a while. When, uh, before that band broke up, Max got other trumpet players, of course. But that happened for a while, and then after a while, I stopped channeling Clifford and let him go on on his journey, his life journey. But I channeled him for a long time after uh, he passed. And then, uh, you know, and we had to play the same um, music, a lot of the same music.
0: We'll be right back with more from Sonny Rollins after a quick break. job is where America goes to hire
2: Hello, hello, this is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open, you have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the Unconventional Awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobilecom mobilecom slash unconventional awards. That's tmobilecom mobilecom slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat.
0: Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with the rest of my conversation with Sonny Rollins. Do you remember where you were when when you found out Clifford and Richie Powell passed away in that car accident?
1: Well, the band was in uh, Brownie and uh, Richie were in Philadelphia where they lived. Richie lived in Willow Grove, a sort of suburb. Brownie was in Philly. So we had been on the road. The band had been on the road. So just we had a little time off before we went. I think we, had, we were going out to California. But on the way, we were going to play in Chicago. So anyway... The days we had off, Max and myself came to New York. And George Morrow came to New York, you know. And the next job was Chicago. And uh, we left uh, Chicago traveling by car. And Brownie and Richie Powell left Philadelphia traveling on the Pennsylvania Turnpike by car. Max and I and George Martin, we got to Chicago and we, you know, waiting around there. uh, I remember Miles was playing at a club right down the street, on 63rd Street. So while we were waiting for Clifford to arrive in Chicago, we got the bad news. It was a shocker. I mean, we were crying like babies. And it was, you know, it was a big event because everybody loved Brownie. Yeah. I mean, Richie, too. But Brownie was, you know, Brownie was was the leader. And and and, had gotten more accolades than uh, Richie. You know, Richie was sort of...
0: Richie was making his name at the time, really, huh?
1: He was making his name at the time.
0: Yeah. Incredible player. Brownie Brownie had
1: made his name, really.
0: Did you see Bud Powell in the sort of aftermath of that or ever get a chance to talk with Bud Powell, who was Richie Powell's brother? Do you know how he took that? I don't know how he took that, no. Okay, I'm just curious. No, I, I, I don't know. Did you feel like that band had more yet to do? I think so. We think, you know, Clifford and I used to
1: practice together all the time. And uh, besides the gigs, but we uh, were trying to get closer you know, as to musicians playing uh, saxophone and trumpet. So we were trying to get closer, trying to get tighter with our uh, the things we had to play ensemble and everything. And I, I was new in the bands. I was trying to learn the book and all of this stuff. But besides that, it was just uh, besides the, the repertoire, I was playing with Clifford that he and I try to
0: always uh, get closer. So, yeah, I think we had a lot to do. Yeah. Do you think that had anything to do with you sort of uh, stripping things back and going to like that trio format the next year, just, just you on sax and then bass and drums? Was that related musically at all?
1: Uh, I don't remember when I did the first trio albums.
0: That would have been fifty-seven. Right around so. that time, yeah, six maybe six months later, eight months later, would have would have been just the yeah.
1: Um, I don't know if it. No, I don't believe so because I had always, I had always uh, enjoyed the uh, smaller instrumentation. You know, in fact, when I first met Miles Davis. I was playing trio, and we, we were playing opposite Miles. You know, Miles was the stars, and we were the low band. And I think I was playing trio at that time. So, no, I think, uh, I think the trio idea didn't
0: stem from uh, the Clifford Brown uh, period. Were you surprised how curious people found that idea of you just playing in that small trio, you based drums? Like you did on on Way Out West or, or or Night at the Vanguard, I hope that it would be received well. Oh, well, I think it was. I think it absolutely was. I mean, it's 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 uh, <laughs> those seem to have really stood the test of time in an incredible way. But it's it's funny also just in a way how curious people find that you know that that it's like oh whoa you are you know this is this pianist trio you know um it seemed to sort of
1: well I always liked. Yeah, and why it was a great piano player. So it's no reflection on piano, but I like the idea of just a rhythm section and uh, allowing me to sort of be free, you know, completely free, just compose things in my own in my own mind and create the the harmonies and the, the, the musical situations and came to me. I had a rhythm behind me. I had the bass and I had the drums to keep things all moving. And I had the freedom to conceive of all of these things. So that's why I liked playing like that. It had nothing to do with anything else.
0: I got you. There's some wild playing on those records from you. <laughs> there's some, And even some incredible, you know, even from the other Cats, you know, like Night at the Vanguard, uh, um, there's a couple of bass solos on that uh, record that are great as well, you know? Yeah, I tried to get
1: as guys that weren't afraid to play without a piano. Yeah. So a lot of guys just, you know, would be reticent to do that. Well, yeah, you know, because the piano fits right in with the... With a, uh, with a bass, you know, yes, like uh, ham and eggs.
0: Yeah, 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 See, I
1: mean, that's piano, drums, bass, yeah. See, they—I mean—that's all. Wow, piano and drums here, bass here, is playing, and all, you know how you You know, those guys can wake up in the middle of the night and throw them, and they'd be right in tune for the next note. So it was something which, you know, uh,
0: was somewhat of a challenge to them. Yeah. It was Wilbur Ware, by the way. Wilbur Ware. Wilbur Ware. We used to have
1: a joke about Wilbur. We used to call him Wilbur B. Ware.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Elvin Jones also on drums on that, just so we Elvin know, let Jones. know. Yeah, incredible, incredible trio, man.
1: And then I had some other guys on that on other parts of the record. I had a, a Pete LaRocca
0: and another guy from uh, Donald uh, Bailey. Baltimore. Donald, who is who Donald Bailey? Bass. I can't figure out who this Donald Bailey bass player I know there's a drummer, Donald Bailey. Donald Bailey, Barry, right. But there's a drummer, Donald Bailey. But is there also a. But I can't find anything out about. A bass player Donald Bailey was I know,
1: I know. He was very under uh active for for musician. Nobody knew much about him. What how did you know him? My good friend went to school down there at uh a black college. I forget what it was, which is you have to forgive me, you know. No, it's, okay. A, it's okay. When you get at a certain age your you you, you your memory you know your short-term memory it goes. You know, yeah.
0: it's, your memory's I'll better think than
1: about mine. It like uh, ten minutes from now, but yes, I, I need it now. But so, that's <laughs> fine. Fine. It. Oh. fine. But anyway, no, he's, he, was, he was very. But he was known in the area, oh. you know, and he, he's a good player. You know, he played good. I liked him on those things.
0: I always thought maybe it was someone that like just couldn't say, like you couldn't say who it was for, for some contractual reason or something, because I was like, I can't right, figure how out who this
1: Yeah, I can't figure out who this guy is. I know. Donald Bailey, and uh, unfortunately he passed not too long after those records oh, came man. out. But they did a great a great job of accompanying me on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. the the record Sunny Side Up that you did with Dizzy Gillespie and Sonny Stitt in 59? Oh, yeah. How did that come together? Well, it came together through Norman Granz. Okay, of course, of course. Do you know who Norman Granz is? He did jazz at the Philharmonic, right? He put on all those right. shows. he was a,
1: he yeah. was a, a promoter,
0: Discovered a Oscar lover Peterson. of jazz. Yeah.
1: He did a lot of uh, promotion of different people, and, and his crown achievement was jazz at the Philharmonic, but he was a big-time uh, jazz promoter. I he, he heard me playing someplace. so he got to be a big fan of mine. And then he uh he it was his date. I mean he, he arranged a date. That's how it turned out to be uh sunny and sunny and dizzy.
0: Yeah. Were you friendly with Dizzy at that time or did you know him decently well or at all?
1: Yeah, I was friendly with Dizzy. You know, if you know Dizzy at all, you've got to be friendly with him.
0: <laughs> Hard guy because not to he's like?
1: just that type of guy. He's, I mean, he's always going to be something light and amusing that uh, becomes part of the conversation. And, uh, you know, Dizzy was a wonderful guy. Dizzy was a guy that always was teaching people stuff. You know, he'd always, uh, young musician would be around, and he'd come in and, uh, you know, after a show, he'd uh, get up on the piano and show the piano, play some chords, and some chords, you know, stuff like that. He was a great natural teacher. I mean, not in any, he, he wasn't trying to diminish the guy. Not, I don't mean really like that. I mean, we were happy to have Dizzy Gillespie there. Yeah. That that was his want. He wanted to uh, to to teach. You know, not to despise the other guy at all. Not right. in that sense, in the
0: least. Yeah.
1: Just everybody was listening to what he was doing, saying,
0: and playing. That record, Sunnyside Side Up, was kind of an anomaly. I feel like uh, in your catalog, at least you know, at the time, it, it felt m- maybe much more like a dizzy record than any- anything else. Which I think is probably only natural. I think it was a Dizzy record, was it? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the three of you guys. I mean, you know, it's, it's named Sunnyside yeah, Up, so it's named after it's you. Fair, I S- mean, it was Dizzy Gillespie. It was his session, I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's fair. That's fair. It's such a cool record.
1: Yeah, some people liked it a lot. Some people, uh, musicians, uh, really thought that uh, that was one of my best records.
0: Yeah, well, you know what? You recorded that 57, but it comes out 59. And the next year, 1960, Lee Morgan quoted you on a Jazz Messengers record. He did your little... Uh, just, there's just this little f- phrase that you do. Oh, really? And yeah, and, and Lee quoted you on this song called The Opener on a Jazz Messengers record just the, the next year. Oh,
1: that's good. Yeah, no, Lee is a great player. Yeah, and Lee used to come. When I was playing with Max and Clifford in Philadelphia at a club there, Lee would come by, you know, to hit Clifford. I mean, so that's another guy. I mean, a young guy that all loved Clifford so much. So, anyway, that's when I met Lee, and he uh, used to play outside the club with his uh, mouthpiece alone. He would show me what he could do just playing his mouthpiece. He you knows so where i say, hey, man, that's good, yeah. Lee Morgan, I mean, but he's great, man. He's a great player.
0: You never got to play with him, did you?
1: I don't think so.
0: Ah, oh, man. that would
1: been- I don't think so. No, I think that's one, one of the trumpet players that I missed.
0: Would have been great to hear you guys together, man.
1: Yeah, I wonder what I much my favor. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure I would have been uh,
0: inspired. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. Is there anyone you admire outside of jazz in terms of musically? Oh yeah, I admire uh,
1: all of the great musicians uh, from the centuries. I like uh, J.S. Bach. I like uh, Brahms. Hmm. Uh, Debussy. Ravel, I like Fats Waller, Lewis Jordan, of course. But
0: man, Lewis one Jordan, of my favorite. You know, and all I like everybody. Incredible. Yeah, I appreciate all kinds of music. Great. Do you listen to music at all still these days? Uh, excuse me. What do you What do you listen to? What are you enjoying listening to now?
1: I don't listen to too much music. It's strange. I I've listened to so much music. In my life, I still think music all the time. I'm still playing my horn, even though I can't play my horn anymore. I'm still imagining passages that I would be fingering on my instrument, uh, although I can't do that anymore. So I'm listening to music. I love music, and occasionally I get to hear music on some of the uh uh radio stations i have on i'll hear some music and i love it but i don't go out to listen to music anymore i don't mean go out in the street i mean i don't
0: seek out uh uh music anymore is it is it frustrating to hear it in a sense since you can't you know just pick up your horn and and play some figures or anything
1: to a certain extent i i wouldn't look at it completely as That's part of it because I hear something and I feel what I would be doing, what I can do. So in a sense, I would say, it's not all frustration because uh, I love music and listening to somebody that I admire is great. It's a great feeling. So uh, frustration might come a little bit because I can't, uh,
0: contribute being to the guy that was part of the scene. Sonny, it is um, it was a pleasure and an honor speaking with you. I-, I hope we get to do it again.
1: Okay, man. Take it easy and God bless.
0: You as well, sir. All right, man. All right. Bye, Sonny. <laughs> Thanks to Sonny Rollins for taking us back to some of the earliest, most important moments in American recorded music history. To hear our favorite Sonny Rollins songs, check out the playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Toliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme is by Kenny
2: Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at t-mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there.